We welcome all of you, of course. Now we want you to get your Bibles as we continue to uh, go through the book of 1 Corinthians. This is our 27th message today. Uh, and we're going through the book verse by verse. And so we encourage you to follow along with us. Now, last time, of course, we dealt with one of those controversial sections, 1 Corinthians 11, having to do with head covering. I ran out the back door as soon as I was finished. <laughs> but in our last message, we looked at Paul's instructions to the Corinthians as to how they could reflect the glory of God to both human and angelic beings by being careful to maintain their respective authoritative status as male and female when ministering in the gathered church. The man did so by not covering his head while praying and prophesying, and the female did so by covering her long hair while praying or prophesying. Paul concluded that section of his reply to them by saying that in spite of any contention that anyone might have as a result of this teaching, that that was the universal and apostolic teaching in all of the churches, no matter what culture it was. He preached the same thing. That's how he ended that section. Now in verse 17, he moves to another problem area. That of the manner in which the Corinthians, at least some of them, observed the Lord's Supper. Now hear his words, verse 17. But in the following instructions, he says, I cannot praise you. The but here shows a contrast to what he has just said. If you look at verse 2, he began the sections on head covering and how the glory of God was shown in the church when ministering by the believers by saying this. I am so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts. And notice now. And that you are following the teaching I passed on to you. He commended them for actually keeping the teaching concerning the head covering. It's amazing how many people seem to uh, overlook that fact. It appears that he had already taught them about the head covering, but they did not understand why they were doing what they were doing sufficiently. So they were asking, why should I do this? Why should this be done? And he explains in that passage exactly why they were doing what they were doing. We have a lot of believers like that today. A lot of believers do not know why they believe what they say they believe. Paul is a great teacher on that. He says, here is why you should believe what you say you believe. And if you believe it, this is what you're supposed to do. That's the first part of chapter, seven, of chapter 11. And so he actually commended them for following his teachings. In context, I believe, concerning the head covering specifically while praying or prophesying. Even though apparently they seemed not to have understood all the reasons why he said they should do so. And so he gave ten theological reasons why the head covering rule for man and woman was to be followed. Ten theological reasons he gave in that passage. Now he comes to Lord's Supper. But it's a different story. He says, I cannot commend you for the way that you are observing 
the Lord's Supper. Notice, for it sounds as, this is the New Living Translation I'm reading from. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. Isn't that a striking statement? Paul is actually reflecting that situation in the Corinthians church as has been passed on to him by probably members of the church who had come to see him. Chloe's household as we saw in chapter 1. In other words, he's responding to first-hand information, not just hearsay from a third party. In fact, his entire epistle is response to that eyewitness report. Now, don't overlook the fact here that the Apostle Paul is saying that it's possible for us to meet as a church and do more harm than good. Did you catch that? It's possible for a church to do more harm than good when they come together, if they do not come together according to God's directives. That's what Paul is working at. And he's going to explain why this was so with the Corinthians. That's why we need to take heed to what Paul is saying in this epistle. Because it actually could mean the difference between our truly honoring and glorifying God when we meet or not doing so. We could come just simply wasting an hour and a half on the Lord's day if we don't meet according to God's way. You see, the Corinthians were meeting according to their way. Paul is saying, now I want you to show you what is God's way for our meeting. After all, it is his church, isn't it? But see, we forget, we forget that many times. The church is no longer God's, the one who gives directives to us. It's ours. We could do what we want. Paul is trying to get them back, say you cannot do that. And he is quite methodical in his response. Notice how he begins. Verse 18. First, see, he's going step by step. Paul is like that. Same thing in the book of Romans. Step by step. He's laying a solid doctrinal belief. So you could say, here is why you should do what I'm asking you to do. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. And so the first cause of rebuke was the existence of divisions. Now, we spoke with this at the, very be- at the very beginning of our exposition of this book because that was the first problem he dealt with. Now, this word divisions refers to what we call splits, if you want, due to differences of opinion as well as of social status. This is the first issue he deals with. You remember, the Corinthians were split over who was the best preacher, who was the best pastor, if you want. You remember, Paul was in the midst of that as well. He concluded in that long study that the reason why they had those differences was because they were fleshly. They were carnal. They were living the same way a person who had never received Christ was living. They had the same selfish attitude. They had the same uh, bias attitude that any unsaved person. In other words, Jesus Christ did not make a difference in their life when it came to looking at the leader of the church or the pastor of the church. This is what he's talking about here. And he says, I hardly believe it. I hardly believe it. I could understand, in other words, 
Why is this happening? It's because of your carnality. It's because of the fact that you are still living as though you are not a Christian. He's not talking here about splits and people got away from the church. Because in a sense, if they've gotten away, then you wouldn't have any more problem in the church. That's why many times the best thing that happens in the church is when some people leave. It's a proning process. Then the growth could go. In fact, look at the next statement. He says, but of course, there must be divisions among you. So that you who have God's approval will be recognized. Now this is a surprising statement here. Some look at it and say, boy, maybe we should have more splits. But that's not what they're saying here. Now, we must interpret this verse within its historical and immediate context. Paul is alluding to a must or necessity or necessary action relating to the Corinthians' specific issue. This is not an overall principle to say that all splits are good. He's not saying that. He's just saying in this particular situation, why it is good? Because now you could see who the Corinthians were, who were really observing the teachings that he had passed on to them. The split made it possible to approve the good and to get rid of the bad. That's what he's saying here. Here's how the Believer's Bible Commentary uh, comments on this verse. And I quote now. When Paul says in this verse, there must also be divisions refers to factions or cliques within the church, not to break away groups who had split away from the ongoing fellowship. That's what he's talking about here. In other words, God is not condoning splits in the church. Rather, Paul means that because of the carnal conditions of the Corinthians, it was inevitable that factions would result. Divisions are proof that some have failed to understand the mind of God. End of quote. So Paul is saying sometimes these splits, these divisions are necessary for those who are true to come to light. Now, having explained that principle, he moves on to the next item on his agenda. An agenda drawn up by the Corinthians themselves. His concern is with the carnal, fleshly divisions that cause chaos and selfish displays on the part of believers when they gather together, and especially when they gather to observe the Lord's Supper, which at that time was the primary meeting of the church. Notice what he says in verse 20. When you meet together, now he is going to try to say, explain why he said what he just said. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. I paraphrase that in this fashion. When you say you gather together to participate in the Lord's Supper, you're lying. Or at least you're being hypocritical. Remembering the Lord is not your chief objective at all. That's what he's saying. Remembering the Lord is not your chief objective at all. The point here is that their intention of meeting is contrary to the purpose of the meeting. The purpose of the, of the, uh, of the service was to remember the Lord. But their purpose was something different. They were remembering themselves. That's what Paul is going to show here. They are hypocrites then. They are pretending that they're coming to worship. 
But worship is far away from the true intention and purpose as it could possibly be. How does that strike you? What is your purpose for coming here this morning? What is your true purpose? Is it to worship? Or is it to meet some friends? Is it worship? Young people? Or to see that girl, that boy? Old people? That's like me. I just been to church. See, as a good Christian. What's your purpose for being here? Is it God? Is it Christ? Or is it yourself? That's what he's dealing with here. You see. He then goes on to explain and give proof of why he makes such a condemning statement. And he focuses on both the attitude and behavior. Notice verse 21. For, now remember as we said before, that always, that preposition always what? Indicates reason. For, some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. Wow. Now Paul is undoubtedly alluding to what was called the agape feast, the love feast. A kind of potluck uh, thing that the early Christians used to engage in before the Lord's Supper. It was a means of them sharing their goods with others who were not as fortunate as, as some of the more affluent people. And they would meet to share as a sense of community and indicating uh, their, their, their concern for one another. Um, um, and they would have this agape feast. Now, this was something that was practiced even in the Old Testament when the Jewish people offered their love offering or their thanksgiving offering. Some of the offerings would then be shared amongst the worshippers that they would gather to show community that they were all one. That was the purpose of the agape feast, to show oneness, to show unity, to show care for one another. But they were far away from that purpose in their actual behavior. Now, some of the more affluent Christians appear who, because of their carnal and fleshly mindset that Paul had already talked about, turned their agape feast into just the opposite of what it was designed to do. So the meeting that was designed to worship God became just the opposite. They made it into a selfish, prejudicial, drunken orgy. Notice, they hurried to get to church early. And they didn't want to get to church early just so they could get the best seats so they could just revel in the worship and the listening to the, to the word of God. No, no. They wanted to get to the church early so they could deprive the poorer people from getting their food. They hurried to eat their own food so nobody else would get it. That's just before the Lord's Supper now. This means that they went to the meeting early for the express purpose of eating their food before the poor members arrived. This shows both selfishness and prejudice. This is where the splits and division came. Not only doctrinally, but even on the level of economic status. Some of them even got drunk. That, by the way, shows that the wine they used was real wine. It was in watered-down stuff. 
And so some who got drunk went into the Lord's Supper in that state. This is the point. They went to observe the Lord's Supper that followed the Agape Feast in a drunken state. Now this is why Paul comes and he says, What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Paul is really angry here. You see, I paraphrase it like this. Are you nuts? If you want to party, party at home. Not when you gather together to observe the Lord's Supper. That's what he's saying. By the way, this seems to indicate that they did not just meet in those small homes anymore. They were meeting in one place someplace else. Because he said, you're coming here. If you want to eat, have a body, do it at home. All right. Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? I paraphrase it in this fashion. Are you so fleshly that is actually your purpose and intention to bring disgrace upon the church by making a spectacle of the poorer members of the church? Remember he talked about making a spectacle about head covering before the angels. He's still on that thing. Can you be so spiritually dense to do such a thing intentionally? He's talking about how in the world can you do this in the name of Christ? Because that's what they're doing. They were gathering to worship. You see, that's why it's possible for us to gather like this and do more harm than good. What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. My paraphrase of that is, I'm dumbfounded by your behavior. If you think I can commend you for such, flav- such fleshly behavior, you've got another thinking coming, boy. You've got another thing coming, boy. That's what Paul is saying. So, to summarize then, Paul is charging the carnal Corinthian Christians with abusing both the agape feast as well as the Lord's Supper. The more affluent abuse the agape feast by preparing lavish meals and not sharing them with the poor brothers and sisters. So that by the time it came for them to serve the Lord's Supper, they were actually participating in a drunken fashion, thus abusing this sacred meal of remembrance. Paul says in doing so, they brought disgrace to the church of God and shame to the poor saints who would have nothing to partake of in the agape feast. He says, that's no way. There's just no way he's going to commend them for that. This passage has a lot to say to us about our attitude and our purpose, our reason for coming to church services and our attitude towards our brothers and sisters. That's what this is all about. Remember now, the context is that he is primarily addressing the rich and the affluent. And he didn't mind addressing them. He wasn't holding back his words just because they were more affluent, thinking that, well, if I say something harsh, they're going to go someplace and take their money with them. He wasn't even thinking about that. They were sinning, and he said they were sinning. Paul didn't pull his punches. Now he goes on to explain why he is so adamant in his condemnation. They are going contrary to the teaching concerning the significance of the Lord's Supper that he passed on to them just as it has been passed on to him by Jesus Christ. He is now going to contrast the way they observe the Lord's Supper with the way in which Jesus himself instituted it. 
Notice what he says in verse 23. For I pass on to you what I receive from the Lord himself. Don't run by this statement too quickly. Paul is saying that he received what he was about to say, what he's about to say directly from Jesus Christ. Now, how it was done, we don't know. When it was done, we don't know. But we know it was done directly by Jesus Christ. The same way he said in Galatians that he didn't get his gospel from the, the, the pillar saints in Jerusalem. He didn't get his gospel from man. He got it from God. That's what he's saying here. I didn't get these instructions concerning the significance of the Lord's Supper from man. From either Peter or John or anyone else. I got it directly from God. Now, what is he implying? He's saying, therefore, if you go contrary to this, you're not going contrary to me. You're going contrary to Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. All right? So don't run by this too much. So this issue is so important, in other words, that Jesus himself appeared directly to Paul to give him instructions concerning how it should be done. That's the Lord's Supper. Notice how he begins. On the night in which he was betrayed. Now don't run past that. This is a this gives the setting for the Lord's Supper, and it's a solemn one. It gives a setting for the institution. I call it the momentous timing of the institution of the Lord's Supper. You see, the literal reading in the original is while he was being bet- betrayed. That's the thrust of the passage. While Jesus was being betrayed. In other words, Jesus instituted his supper at the very time Judas was in the process of betraying him. That was heavy on his heart. There's a sense of tragedy here. There's a sense of solemnity solemnity here. While he was being betrayed by one of his own... While this was going on, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. The disciples knew, because Jesus told them it would happen. And they were wondering, is it me? Is it I? Is it I? You remember that? Is it I? And so there was a solemnity of this setting. There was this tenseness, if you want. It was during that time that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. It wasn't just a, by the way, it was an emotional experience for Jesus Christ. The disciples were grieving. Jesus was grieving. While he was being betrayed. That's the setting. That's the atmosphere. The Lord Jesus took some bread. The unleavened bread, probably, being used for the observance of the Passover. What did this Passover do? It celebrated the redemption of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. What is the Lord's Supper? It celebrates redemption of the believer from sin through the death of Jesus Christ. That's the setting. That's the setting. This wasn't something haphazard. This wasn't an afterthought of Jesus Christ. This institution of the Lord's Supper. Verse 24. And gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces. And said, this is my body. Which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Or do this as this text says. To remember me. 
Now, please, please, be careful here. Jesus is not giving grace. Jesus is not saying grace over the bread. He's not thanking God for this bread that gives him physical sustenance. This is not grace that Jesus is giving here. He is giving thanks for what this bread represents. His body given as a sacrifice for our sin. In fact, this is a very personal exchange between the Son and the Father. Jesus is giving thanks to the Father for his body. His incarnate body. Notice, the text says he gave thanks to God for it. His body. Because that's what the bread speaks of. He isn't giving thanks for the bread. He's giving thanks for his incarnate body. Listen to the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 12. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Notice now. I therefore, I'm sorry, therefore, when he comes, that's Jesus, into the world. This is before Christmas. Or as Christmas. This is Christmas. When he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Did you get that? Jesus' body wasn't just any old body. This was a body that was specially prepared by God the Father for a special purpose. What was it? In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. But I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book of the written to do your will, O God. His body was prepared to be a perfect sacrifice for our sin. Notice, please notice, Jesus' body was specially and specifically made to be a body fit to be a perfect sacrifice for our sin. That's what Jesus was giving thanks for. That's the significance of the incarnation. God the Father, through the overshadowing of God the Holy Spirit, prepared a special body in the womb of the, of the Virgin Mary for Jesus, God the Son, so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. That's what Jesus is giving thanks to God for. And that's why we should do the same when we gather for the Lord's Supper. That is what is meant by discerning the Lord's body. One aspect of it. His perfect God-prepared body was given as a sacrifice for us. Now, beloved, isn't that something to give thanks for? And so when you gather together around the Lord's table and that little piece of bread comes around, when you say thanks, you're not giving thanks for that piece of bread. You're giving thanks for the body that was specially prepared by God the Father to be a perfect sacrifice for your sin. And if that does not bring praise and worship to your life, I don't know what can. He says, do this, as we see in a moment, to remember me. Notice that. To remember who? Me. Not to remember the pot rose. Not to remember how many people on the line out of the hotel. Not to remember the game might start. 
When you come here, you gather together to remember me, Jesus says. Me, to remember my body prepared by God to be a perfect sacrifice for your sin. That's something to thank God for. Of course, some maintain that when Jesus said, this is my body, he meant that literally. So when that certain words are said by certain special men, that the bread and the wine, the elements are turned into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And when we partake it, we are actually partaking of his real blood and his real flesh. My friends, that is not, in my opinion, in keeping with the word of God. They call it transubstantiation. We reject it as being sheer mysticism that borders on their cult. Jesus was standing before them when he repeated these words. His body was not yet given. His blood was not yet shed. And if they weren't there in the elements when Jesus spoke these words, how can he be there when sinful man repeat any kind of magical words that can turn one element into another? My friends, the bread is a symbol of his body in which he was incarnated as a God-man, as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. Also, the breaking of the bread refers to the distribution among the disciples, not referring to his body. Sometimes we get into the process of we focus on all of the horror that Jesus went through, beatings that he took when we remember the Lord. And his body was severely bruised and severely battered. But you see, that focuses on the process of dying. Now listen carefully. When we focus on his sufferings, we're focusing on the process of his dying. The Lord's Supper is not to remember the process of Christ dying. It's to remember the fact that he died. It's a finished transaction. The work is done. We thank God for the death of Jesus Christ, not for the dying of Jesus Christ. It is the death of Jesus Christ that has completed our salvation. It is the death of Jesus Christ that is finished. That's what we come to remember. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper. Now, in the same way means that before, that he did the same thing with the cup that he did with the loaf. He gave thanks for the blood. He gave thanks for his blood shed for the sins of the world. It speaks of his death. Notice, it was done after supper, referring to the Passover meal. Paul, and of course, ultimately Jesus, is making the point that there was a separation between the two meals. They weren't the same. When the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus, it was done after or following the Passover. That's when the early, the early disciples did it. After the agape feasts. They were not in the mingle in any, any way at all. One did not carry over into the other. But the Corinthians were not doing it that way. They were combining it and they were turning the Lord's Supper into a selfish orgy. Paul would soon tell them that that was an unworthy way to remember the Lord. Listen to his words. In the same way he took the cup, after, cup of wine after supper saying, 
This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Friends, please stop here. God wants to say something to us. Please listen. I believe that this is one of the most momentous, significant statements made by Jesus Christ when he was on earth. And he did it at the institution of the Lord's Supper. He said this is a new covenant. It marked a distinction in time. The same way the death of Christ did that has caused us to reckon time as B.C. and A.D. Before Christ and after the Christ, after the death of Christ. So the death of Christ now causes us to divide God's dealing with man as O.C. and N.C. Old covenant and new covenant. Did you get this? This is how time is divided for the Christian. Old covenant, pass, done away with. New covenant, instituted by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is an indication of God doing something new. That he with his people. Something that he has promised long ago. And now has taken place. And what started it? What instituted it? The blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we remember. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper. One commentator puts it this way. The cup is the parchment deed as it were. On which the new covenant or last will is written and sealed. Marking over to you all blessings here and hereafter. End of quote. Old covenant. New covenant. Beginning point. Institution point. The blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we are to remember when we come to the Lord's table. This covenant refers to the unconditional covenant that God promised to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah 31. In that covenant, he agreed to be merciful to the unrighteousness and to remember their sins and iniquities no more. Hebrews 8 tells us about this in detail. This new covenant was ratified, put into effect by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says that Jesus told him, God told him, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. The foundation of the new covenant was laid through the cross work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, this is so important. I want you to gather together to remember it. This is no ordinary meal. The Corinthians' manner of observing this momentous occasion was unworthy of believers in Christ and lessened the importance and significance of what was being being remembered. And he's going to deal with that shortly. But note once more the words of Jesus. Do this to remember me as as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, these are precious words here. These are significant words. These are words that must not go unheeded or misunderstood. 
He gives a command. Do this. The Lord's Supper is not an invitation that you could reject at will. It is not a suggestion that you could take or leave it. It is a command from the master himself. He says, do this. Remember now, this is the one who said, why call you me master and do not the things that I tell you. Didn't he say that? Now he says, do this. Then why is it that so many people, if the Lord's Supper is done at the end of the service, leaves before it is done? Why is it that when it is done in the evening, so few people come out? Even though the master says, do this. They'd rather do something else. Why call you me master and do not the things that I say? Friends, the Lord's Supper is not an option in the Christian life. If we are going to be true to our master, it's a necessity. Do this. Unfortunately, time has gone, so I leave the rest until next time, Lord willing. But I want you to reflect on this. The Lord's Supper is no ordinary meal. This is one of the most significant experiences that a believer can experience as a faithful believer. Do you know this is the only, the only ordinance that Jesus Christ left for the church? Do you know that? This one. 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 Do this in remembrance of me. Remember my death, I died for you. Remember that we have a new beginning. Remember that this body was prepared especially to be a perfect sacrifice for you. Remember that this blood has given you forgiveness of sins. Remember me. Why is it? Why is it that we do not want to remember him? The Corinthians said they were doing it, but they were doing it in an unworthy manner. How are you doing it? Father, thank you for your word. May it find good soil and spring forth into good fruit. And all of God's people said, Amen.